content warnings for this episode include worker exploitation, gender-based violence, including sexual harassment, rape and murder, abortion and abortion rights, unfair trials and incarceration, greenwashing, sexual harassment, military violence, suppression of democracy and homophobia. Hi everyone and welcome to Feminist in Training, Newcastle University Feminist Society's brand new podcast that looks at all things intersectional feminism. Um, today we're going to be talking about a fashion revolution and the fashion industry and all of that. <laughs> um, and I'm your host Jemima Elliott, I'm the Vice President of FemSoc and today I'm jo uh, joined joined, <laughs> can't speak, um, joined by Rosie Plummer, who is our, one of our general committee members and who will, you will have heard before on one of our previous episodes. Um, yeah, hi Rosie, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. It's been a busy week, I feel, but excited to do this. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so before we get into the main chunk of this episode, uh, we're going to go through some feminist news as we do in every episode. Um, so there's lots of stuff that's been happening recently. I don't know whether you've noticed. Um, so we obviously don't have a chance to go through every single thing that's happened on the planet since the last episode. Uh, we've got a few things that you may not have heard of or that we think are interesting. Um, so yeah, um, the first one is that there a trial started on the 12th of April, um, so at the time of recording about a week ago, um, for in Russia um, that was trialing um, feminist and LGBT activist Yulia Zetkova, I think I'm saying that right, I'm sorry Yulia if I'm not, um, so she has been um, charged for multiple different things. Um, she's an artist, um, so draws all sorts of different things, um, kind of, yeah, to, for feminist and LGBT activism, um, specifically drawing um, naked AFAB bodies and vulvas, as well as drawing um, families, like same-sex families with children, very wholesome, like, pictures um but she's been charged for several different things because of these um these drawings um so in december 2019 um well actually in november 2019 she was detained um well, that's when she was first detained for propaganda of non-traditional sexual relations among minors which was the images of same-sex families um and she was put under, she was found guilty of that a month later um, and then been in house arrest until March. So basically until lockdown, which, you know, then we're all on um, non-official house arrests. Um, so yeah, and she was charged like massive amounts for that as well. So she was charged um, 75,000 rubles, which is the equivalent of 1,500 US dollars. Um, but then, this new trial now um, that's ongoing 
um, is on charges of pornography for her drawings um, of naked people, um, which, you know, we see images of naked people all the time. Um, so she's facing up to six years in prison for those extra charges. Um, yeah, so over a year and a half now of all of these different charges and imprisonments, um, which it's just a bit ridiculous, really. Um, yeah, I actually hadn't really heard about this, which is quite embarrassing. Um, but I find Russia very baffling. I mean, it's it's like a lot of countries around the world, but I <laughs> this is so incoherent, sorry, but like the You're fact gonna... that they have, it's not illegal to be gay, but then they have all these laws in place to stop you being gay. That's what I don't understand about it is, the fact that I think since the 90s, it's not officially been illegal, but yeah, as you say, to then have children within a gay relationship is seen as to very taboo still. And it's just a very interesting conservative society. And it's hard to see how you can make that change happen if people like this are being criminalized. So it's never gonna be normalized. Yeah, exactly. Like she's been accused of, um, part of what she's been accused under is being kind of like gay propaganda law. So it's, um, I don't know all the details of the laws. I don't. I'm not an expert in Russian law in any way. Um, but I don't know whether it's yeah, if it's not illegal to be gay, but then there's laws around supposed gay propaganda uh, with massive air quotes. Um, yeah. It's yeah. I suppose you could even look at our country though in sort of Thatcher kind of era. Yeah. It's a very very similar situation where things have been legalized, but. <laughs> there's still this stigma being enforced by the establishment um, to kind of discourage people, but they can perhaps get away with it. Well, not that Russia has a good human rights record, but <laughs> on the surface level, they can get away with saying, oh, well, we've we've legalized this. So we're yeah. kind of, we're, we're sticking by international law kind of thing when they're clearly not. Yeah, it's, um, it's very section 23. Yeah, very. Um, I was just gonna move on to the bit of feminist news I picked out, which isn't particularly related, um, but, something I wanted to briefly talk about and we will try and keep it short is the violence that's breaking out in Northern Ireland. Um, so at the time of recording, I believe we have a slight um, truce because of Prince Philip's funeral, um, which we can come on to later. But um, oh. on the whole, the past few weeks in Northern Ireland have been becoming increasingly violent um, since the 23rd anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. Um, and I don't particularly on this podcast want to be pointing fingers of blame at any one side. However, I just think it was so obvious as soon as Brexit happened that this was going to be the outcome. Um, and obviously there's so many more issues with Brexit, but it has been apparent for so many years that this was something that wasn't really discussed in the whole Brexit referendum. You know, everything was about really immigration, yeah. um, which personally <laughs> I like having immigrants in this country but regardless of that there was no consideration of the fact the entire Good Friday Agreement is literally based on the fact that the UK and Ireland were both part of Europe um, and I just think it's such a massive oversight which is unfortunately going to result in violence and loss of lives again um, and I know you Jemima said that you actually learned about the troubles at school a bit which I thought was really interesting yes. I never did anything about it. Yes, yeah, so I did it as part of my GCSE history coursework, like kind of 
with the question was like, how's the Good Friday Agreement worked? And <laughs> I remember because that was the last time Northern Ireland had a, like a, a kind of local national government was then because that kind of broke down as I was doing my GCSE coursework. And I was like, it was, you know, and we would talk about it in class and it was then breaking down on the news. And we were all like, oh, um, yeah, which I'm really grateful to have had that in my history coursework because it was just you never get taught about it. And I kind of felt like I understood it a lot more afterwards. Um, yeah, I also, when you were speaking, realised that instead of saying section 28 earlier, I said section 23. And I, was, I think I got the numbers mixed up because it's the 23rd anniversary of the Friday Agreement. <laughs> Sorry, my bad. <laughs> up in my head, but it's, 20, it's okay, it's all Thatcher really. It's 28. So. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's all Thatcher and numbers of in the 20th. Um, but no, just going back to the fact you actually did it at school, I do think that's so impressive because I find it baffling the fact like how little we all know well yeah. most of us apparently you know more but like how <laughs> little most of it, most of us know about Northern Irish history because technically it is part of the United Kingdom and yet we just ignore the fact that there's been like a basic civil war within our country for decades um, and I just yeah until I I studied Northern Ireland and sort of criminalization policies for my undergraduate dissertation and I went to Belfast and literally until I went to Belfast doing my history dissertation I didn't know there's literally like a wall still dividing the two communities in Belfast and I was like this is in the UK why do we not know about this? Yeah I think as well like you can't have people trying to solve the problems who don't understand the problems themselves like if you want to have an, a like a good solution you need to like obviously it's a very difficult issue <laughs> like it's difficult trying to make a solution but if, if you have like policy makers probably British policy makers trying to like force their way in and do things to like make a change but not understanding their consequences of their actions or the, the kind of the root of those actions then it's just going to cause more problems um so I think education on it for everyone is like paramount to a whole like otherwise it just gets ignored yeah and I think especially this year with it's sort of the hundred the centenary um of the creation of Northern Ireland this yeah. year which obviously is going to heighten tensions even more and I just think it actually would be a really good time too within the UK well, within the mainland UK to actually educate people on it. Um, so hopefully that could perhaps be the good that does come out of this is maybe people in the mainland will actually start talking about it. Um, but yeah, it's just it's just sad to be honest, the fact that this agreement was worked so hard on and then Brexit kind of thrown it away. Yeah, like the lack of consideration really for it. Um, yeah, it's something that we it's really important to talk about. Um, okay, the next bit of feminist news. Um, another fun topic, because I feel like the feminist news is always a fun topic, um, is the anti-abortion bills going through in Texas. Um, yeah, that's sarcastic enthusiasm for anyone who thought I was excited about that. Um, but yes, yeah, so there's actually like several bills going through kind of the Texas Senate. I don't know all the names for the individual state stuff but I think it's the state senate um so there's oh yeah 
it's just so frustrating all of these um there's kind of the main bill which is HB 1515 uh, which is otherwise known as the Texas heartbeat bill um there are other several ones as well um but I think the Texas heartbeat bill is the main one um and as it sounds it kind of restricts abortion when you hear a heartbeat on an ultrasound um so like restricted abortion restricted to six weeks um and I'm just to put that into perspective for anyone who doesn't have periods that's your period's two weeks late if when you're six weeks pregnant like I don't know about you Rosie but I I, I don't know whether I would notice so much um it depends no, I just I think it's such a yeah an underestimation of just the practicalities of that <laughs> happening because yeah like you say you probably spend a week waiting for your period to come and then maybe like the shops are closed because of the pandemic well probably not in America but you know the practicalities of literally waiting a week and then getting a pregnancy test and then getting an appointment especially with private healthcare. Yeah, like it's insane it would be so difficult you wouldn't notice at all like even when you did notice you have a very limited amount of time to organize that um which is yeah so that main bill has gone through um well it was introduced to the house in the on the 15th of march this year um and as of the 7th of april has had a public hearing i'm not quite sure in my research where it's at right now um i wasn't particularly clear but yeah i did see that all of the sponsors are republican of the bill of republican the vast majority are white and presumably cis men um there were a few women in there um and yeah but there were very few humans <laughs> i was scrolling through and it was like their pictures it was just all um white men um but yeah at the moment the in texas most abortions are banned after 20 weeks um but to put that into context for the u well the majority of the uk as we said like touched on northern ireland earlier is a bit more complicated there than the rest of the country um but yeah in the uk it's 24 weeks um and this bill will also let anyone sue a, an abortion provider or anyone who's kind of like an accomplice um and there are other bills as well that are like going to kind of ban pill induced abortions up to seven weeks as well um and at the moment 40 percent of abortions by texan residents are actually pill induced so that really restricts a massive amount of people um so yeah it's just it's just very frustrating to see all of that happening yeah, I think as well, it's very, I don't understand American politics, so I don't know how much personal influence President Biden has over this, but I think it's just very disappointing when there was, not that anyone thought Joe Biden was going to be the most radical president in the world, but I think it is quite disappointing to have celebrated getting Trump out of office to then still have bills like this being passed, to still have Biden sort of restricting numbers of asylum seekers, like it's just yeah, like I say, it's just quite disappointing that it doesn't seem to have made a great change, the fact that we don't still have Trump in charge. Yeah, I think it's that makes it really important to remember that, like, just because the key figure is kind of gone, doesn't mean that the issue 
has disappeared or that the reason why he was president have gone the reasons are still very much there um and there's still the same systems are in place that ensured he was there um and yeah and we don't know whether like this might be challenged but to the supreme court obviously roe v wade is still just about hanging on um and the supreme court at the moment i think it is majority republican so we don't quite know how that will affect Roe v Wade standing with things like this, whether it will be able to take things like this or whether it will potentially overturn Roe v Wade. Um, there's a lot of potentials with these kind of things. And we know we saw a couple of years ago, lots happened in other states, but then they were kind of blocked by the Supreme Court. But since then, um, they obviously uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's gone. I think they had someone else go as well. So it is majority Republican, um, which is a fun time. Yeah, and I think you're really right about the fact that just because there's a, quite, well, slightly better figurehead at the top, it doesn't mean there's any less need for sort of activism and energy. And I think that's a big problem with election energy, especially as yeah. there's so much kind of oomph put into getting someone like Joe Biden elected, but not that energy isn't maintained and fighting for the actual issues. Yeah, it's like the focus is on changing the person at the top rather than changing the systems underneath them, which are the, the important thing that, um, that actually needs to change. It doesn't really matter who's in charge if all of these six systems are still in place. Um, or just something a little bit genuinely more funny. Um, so obviously, okay, this bit isn't funny, um, but <laughs> um, obviously recently, we'll all know, we've seen it everywhere. Prince Philip died last week. I can't remember when exactly now, how long it was, at least a week ago. Um, but I don't want to talk about that massively because we've all seen it everywhere. But I just wanted to highlight one article that I saw in The Guardian that just really made me laugh. Um, so it was an article by Gabby Kinsliff. I've never seen anything by her before that I can remember. Um, but it was, uh, it's just how the, the subheading for the article was, it's a stretch to call him a feminist icon, but the Duke of Edinburgh allowed his wife the spotlight as husbands of public figures rarely did. I just it's it's questionable from the Guardian as well. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, I'm just like why it's how like I'm not calling him a feminist icon, but I am. Like how why no? That's not how it works. Yeah, I also like regardless of what you think of the monarchy. I, I feel they've misunderstood the point of a monarchy and the fact that the Queen is literally the head of it. Like, it's yeah. not... Like, I don't think the Duke of Edinburgh had a choice in this. I don't think this was a feminist statement by him in any means. It was the fact that he was married to the literal Queen of England. It's like, that, that's not feminism. I don't, I don't think you understand feminism, Gabby. Um, yeah, that just, it just made me laugh a lot and I thought it needed sharing. <laughs> Yeah, so everyone can go look that article up and enjoy that. Yeah, oh, the Guardian, like, honestly, I wasn't expecting that from the Guardian. Mm. There, 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 there they went. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, so the other thing that happened, well, it'll be last week by the time you're all listening to this, but was that the shops reopened in England, which is kind of going to lead into our next section a little bit. But what did you get up to this week, Jemima? Did you do any shopping, any pubbing? This no. can be our news. <laughs> <laughs> I really haven't. Um, I've kind of, yeah, I've been um, back with my like family for a little bit um, in the Easter holidays. And I, no, I've, so I saw two friends who I haven't seen for like, I think we realized it was 16 months uh, that we'd not seen each other because of the pandemic. Um, so I saw them in person for the first time in ages, which was really nice. Um, but that was, yeah, we didn't go to the pub or anything. We just sat in the park and ate takeaway. Um, and yeah, I briefly went to the beach and saw some people that I know. But yeah, no pubs or shops or anything. I don't know. I kind of, I feel almost bad that I don't really want to go to the pub. Like, is that weird? I don't know. I feel there's been a big rush this week. And I have been to the pub, I will admit. I have been to three beer gardens this week. Um, Very exciting. But <laughs> I will admit, I felt quite like overwhelmed almost. Not by actually being there. When I was there, I had a really good time. But more by the fact that all of my friends and this is definitely dig all my friends but um we're like you have to come to the pub this week we don't care that you're at work we don't care that like you have a master's degree to do like you have to come because the pubs are open like and I appreciate that this pandemic perhaps taught us not to take things for granted and to do things now in yeah. case they are shut again next week however <laughs> yeah I feel like there has been a lot of expectation that you have to go out this week um especially yesterday I didn't go out yesterday but the weather was amazing and I think literally everyone I know was in the beer garden and then that was the classic like FOMO of like I actually don't want to be there but everyone else is I just I don't know I feel really anxious about like being in those kind of places like it's yeah I just I mean I've said it before to people that individually like I more miss house parties than going to the like actually going out or like going to the pub and stuff obviously like I will go to the pub again like I'm not like I'm never going to I think I'm just a little bit more apprehensive at the moment too I'm probably more likely to go when it's a bit quieter um yeah I want to go to bookshops again I've not had the chance to go to a bookshop yet when I'm back in Newcastle I'm going to go to a bookshop and live my best life basically yeah, and just to wrap up this before we come on to our fashion topic a bit, because it does actually relate. Um, I think going back out to pubs for me, I haven't done any shops, but I haven't really thought about what I've worn for the past year. Mm. And yeah, going to the pubs this week was probably the first time where I was like, oh, I don't know what to wear. Oh, I want to look nice because other people look nice. And then you go and everyone else has new clothes. And I think, yeah, it definitely, I felt it was quite relevant to the topic we're going to talk about this week because I, it's something during lockdown I haven't really felt the urge to be like not to look nice but yeah to look nice See, that's <laughs> Whereas, really interesting because like I've still been dressing the exact same as I have been and kind of been like oh what shall I wear today I think because that's I enjoy clothes and like putting outfits together and like styling things and being like oh that looks pretty um so like um yeah so I have kind of been thinking about it but not necessarily for what it is more reaffirmed to me that I'm doing that for myself rather than other people, which is quite nice just to like know that. Yeah, no, that's really nice, which I would like to say I do that, but it was definitely, I felt like that until about 10 minutes before I went out the door and then it was like, what's everyone else going to be wearing? Yeah. <laughs> um, 
so yeah I feel unless you have any other feminist news that kind of wraps up no I think that's about it um, yeah so yeah. that's our feminist news for the week we can get on to the main chunk of the episode Okay, so as you may have seen from the title of this episode, um, we're mostly going to be talking about Fashion Revolution Week and the fashion industry and all of that jazz. Um, so hopefully, I'm not sure when this will actually go out exactly, um, but at the time of recording, tomorrow is the beginning of Fashion Revolution Week. Um, so for anyone who doesn't know, Fashion Revolution Week was founded in 2014 by fashion revolution um yeah, like the charity fashion revolution um and it's always it always takes place on a week that contains the 24th of april so this week this week <laughs> this year that's the 19th to the 25th of april but next year obviously that'll be the 18th to the 24th and then the 24th to whatever the week after the 24th um the year after that um, and that's because the 24th of April is the anniversary of the Rana Plaza disaster, um, which took place on the, 20, um, the 24th of April 2013 um, in Dhaka, Bangladesh. And that was when um, a massive factory, it had seven mini, fa like seven factories in it, um, I think five of which were illegal or several were illegal, I can't remember exactly off the top of my head. I have got it written down somewhere. Um, they collapsed and um, over 1,100 people were killed and over two, well, many, many more were affected, but I think over 2,000 more were injured, um, many very seriously injured. And obviously then there's the more affected, the fam all of the families affected, the dependents affected. Um, yeah, it's, a very it's the, it was the biggest disaster in um the garment industry's history probably one of the most famous industrial disasters potentially ever obviously there are many other industrial disasters and it's not the only major industrial disaster to have happened um in the garment industry specifically there have been many and more recently as well and they're they're constantly happening it's not a unusual phenomenon this one is just the biggest yet really um yeah we can talk more about that if you want to there's a lot you can say about Rana Plaza um many people were evacuated out before it actually collapsed but those were mostly kind of um administration people kind of people related to finance who were working in the building um, whereas the garment workers saw the cracks in the buildings these massive cracks and we're saying we can't go in this is not safe but we're forced to go back in otherwise they were threatened to be fired um so yeah you can see the class differences of who's prioritized there of the people involved with finance versus the garment workers themselves um and most of the people killed in a disaster were young women um and that aligns with the fact that 80 percent of garment workers worldwide are young women um, so yeah, women about her age, um, and by our, I mean mine and Rosie's, like young twenties. Um, so yeah, the Fashion Revolution Week is there to 
commemorate Rana Plaza and to ensure that we work to make sure it doesn't happen again um, and to generally make the fashion industry a safer place. Yeah, I think I was reading up on that a little bit this week for an essay actually, and I was really surprised to learn, which you probably already know, but um, that a lot of the brands responsible genuinely didn't know to start with, not in an excuse making way, but because of the way the industry works is that brands sort of ship off their patterns to an agent who then finds the cheapest place to produce those mm -hmm. designs. Um, without necessarily the brands themselves knowing where that garment is being made. Um, so I know Primark claimed admitted responsibility pretty quickly, but other brands were slow to come forward. And yes, some of them were definitely avoiding responsibility, but others genuinely do not know where their production lines are coming from, which I found really baffling. Like I say, you probably know that, Jemima, but I, I really didn't know that. And I was like, what? Why? Like, why as a brand would you not want to know? No, I know. It's it's genuinely wild. And like a lot of them found out that they were involved in Rana Plaza because their labels were found in the wreckage. That was how they found out rather than because of internal monitoring or actually knowing where that what their supply chains were they found out because of the labels that was it um yeah which is just wild obviously Primark were kind of the one of the first ones to be like we were there this is our fault like we needed to, we are we are implicated um but even now we don't fully know every single brand who are involved despite it being Eight years later? Yes, eight years later, we still don't know 100% every single brand. And there were a lot of brands involved. Um, yeah, so now like Fashion Revolution Week is a point of activism for so many different groups. Like um, obviously Fashion Revolution as an organization, but also Remake, who I'm an ambassador for, um, Clean Clothes Campaign, Labour Behind the Label, who were part of Clean Clothes Campaign. Um, basically every single kind of ethical sustainable fashion advocacy group gets involved in fashion revolution week in some way or another is a huge moment in kind of like the move i don't know what the movements the right kind of word to use but yeah in terms of this group of people this is a huge point of pushing for change yeah, how did you first become involved in remaking this whole kind of topic because i know I would say I haven't, I definitely am not as educated on you as it, um, and it definitely wasn't really a conscious decision for me, it was more that growing up I volunteered in charity shops and I used to buy stuff from charity shops because it was cheaper, so I didn't tend to buy new clothes because of money, but it wasn't, it wasn't like an active decision, um, and I think that mentality continued, I'm not going to pretend I've never bought anything from Primark, um, but I definitely have always bought less than my friends, but that wasn't really a like political statement, that was genuinely just, I didn't want to spend the money on something I was only going to wear once, um, but it's really, I would say it's only within the past year or two that I've started like thinking about it as a more of a political statement, um, so yeah, I just kind of wondered how did that start for you? Um, it's kind of difficult to like, figure it out completely where it started obviously like you, it takes a while to see something like clothes as a political thing but it is and it touches every aspect of kind of life I mean who doesn't wear clothes obviously a couple of people won't but very very minority um but yeah I don't know I kind of like I mean I used to love shopping like it wasn't necessarily, I probably didn't buy ridiculous amounts I don't know but more like you know I used to love H&M 
so much which now I'm like oh H&M damn it like um but the amount of clothes I have in my wardrobe still that are from H&M because I bought them and I love them and I'm going to keep wearing them and cherish them uh but yeah I have a lot of H&M clothes because <laughs> when I loved them so much when I was younger um I don't know exactly I think it was like I actually plug plug wrote a blog post about my like slow fashion journey a while ago so if you want to read in more detail about how I got into this kind of like world and activism then maybe have a look at that um but yeah I think in when I was like 17 like one of my friends um kind of mentioned fast fashion to me and I was like what's that and and she kind of knew more about it than me and kind of told me a little bit more and then I was like oh it sounds really interesting so I kind of gradually looked into things um and that's when I was like yeah when I was in sixth form, I was looking a lot more into sustainability that's like when I became veggie and then vegan and um like was genuinely looking into all of these systems and stuff um that's also when I started reading a lot more about feminism and um so I had loads of access to loads of free books really easily because I worked as a librarian so I just I got loads of like books really easily that I read on the bus to and from college um so I got through loads of books about all of these issues so I was kind of like learning a fair bit um and yeah I think then like by the time I finished sixth form I was kind of look, looking into these things a lot more buying secondhand I was kind of like going for it through a bit of a shift in my style anyway not completely because I have a massive amount of clothes that I still own from when I was like 14 um that somehow still fit me um so yeah I, I don't know exactly I think it's complicated I like I've looked into these things gradually and then yeah it was a really gradual thing um and then obviously with the pandemic I then had some time to look into it a little bit more like I was on furlough from my job and then got laid off so I wasn't working over like summer because I literally physically wasn't able to um and I got to spend more time on my blog and I was able to write about these things which I didn't have the time to before so literally because of the pandemic I've been able to actually spend more time on it um like doing research that's kind of how I found remake as well with the pay up campaign um and then in August last year I became an ambassador um which is so cool I love being a Real American ambassador like it's I've learned so much and it's really helps improve how much activism I've been able to do um but yeah I've been able to do like a few things with like you within uni work as well like uh in second year I did a talk an essay about Rana Plaza and like post-colonial violence as well which was great um obviously the topic's not great but it was great because it meant I could research it more and learn more um and again through like one of my um assessments this year as well I was able to look into boohoo a bit more as well um so just kind of hijacking my degree and, and using that to research um yeah it's not a very linear or smooth kind of path it was just something I was interested in very gradually looked into um yeah yeah I think that hijacking your degree thing and having time as well that's definitely oh, so many things to touch on but I think yeah that's a problem for a lot of people like yourself probably a year ago is not having the time to yeah. put the research into things like this um but yeah in terms of being able to cater your degree to it I know that's so useful like I actually started reading a lot of your 
fashion 101 document um <laughs> posts about po um yeah colonialism in the fashion industry which i thought was really interesting um but yeah if i suppose what's going on in the world at the moment that you would want to raise awareness of in regards to the fashion industry oh there's so much there's so much i mean we've talked about this like separately and just being like oh there's so many different things and you can focus on everything because there's just so much that's happening so obviously we will miss out stuff today um but i think one thing kind of currently i do talk about the pay up campaign quite a lot and there's a lot of information about that out there so you probably won't go into that in too much detail um for more information on that like look at remake and kind of look at the hashtag pay up and like you can have a look at my blog there's all sorts of stuff there um but i think one thing that's happened much more recently is um garment workers and how they've been involved in resisting the like military coup in myanmar um so i don't know how much you know about this rosie i've only been doing some research on it recently to try and find out more um but yeah the military coup in myanmar began in on the 1st of february this year um and garment workers have been at the forefront of kind of resistance to this um I don't know all the full history of Myanmar. I can no way claim to be an expert in any way. Um, but many, many gun workers have been killed. Um, on the forward, March the 14th, there was a massacre of 60 garment workers um, in, oh, I'm going to butcher this, I don't know how quite to say it, Hlaing Thaya? I'm so sorry to anyone who is from Myanmar. Um, but yeah, which is this the main kind of garment producing zone in the country. Um, I kind of like tanks, it's really not nice to hear, but like tanks kind of just marched into the area and workers were trapped inside and then they're like shooting people on the road and inside the buildings. Um, so yeah, and since then many more people have died, both garment workers, non-garment workers. Um, but garment workers really are at the forefront of kind of leading the cry to denounce the coup internationally. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot more I could go into as well, but I don't know whether you have any more information or thoughts on things. Um, not particularly in regards to the actual like garment side of it, but I think as I guess we're going to come on to in a minute, I find it quite bizarre how little international like denunciation that has been like again I appreciate the fashion industry especially perhaps doesn't like to be political but at the same time they do when it suits them you know they all yeah. want to make Black Lives Matter t-shirts when they thought it would make them money I mean all the black squares <laughs> yeah like I I just I don't I really don't rate that sort of what's the word like tokenism but at the same time it's so telling which causes people do choose to mention um yeah. and not just the fashion industry to be fair like i have heard surprisingly little condemnation of this um like it's something i've seen in the news a bit but like to be honest nobody really seems to be i don't i don't know what we can do about it because i'm not advocating sending troops yeah. anywhere yeah <laughs> but yeah, i do find it bizarre that so many countries just seem to have accepted that this is the situation and I know even with Thailand who's a neighbouring country they're just kind of turning away refugees at the moment which is really sad like mm. to see that there's that level of 
unwillingness to kind of help with what is going on um but that's not really fashion related <laughs> but no but still it's still relevant the fact that like it's very little talked about and despite you know everyone's talking about prince philip and no one's talking about this um yeah i think with the the garment workers have been really key to the pro-democracy protests like on the street um i know a lot of this from remake as well in the last remake community call they were talking about how they'd been on the like zoom calls with some like garment worker activists in Myanmar and kind of like talking to the press as well um and how they had really like we don't know that much we, we know a very limited amount because of the kind of cuts to the internet and all of that kind of thing so the connections were really dodgy but we were able to they were able to get something through um and then like the remake staff were able to feed back to all the ambassadors about what they'd heard so they like the garment workers are calling for brands to just boycott Myanmar literally to stop their jobs like they which would stop them having any money or being able to eat um that's what they're calling for to kind of put pressure on the government um so they have a, like a strike fund as that's um kind of going to that people are donating to to help I kind of um mitigate those um because they, yeah, they're trying to strike as well as calling on brands to stop production. Because um, there are several brands, like key brands, <laughs> key brands, like big brands that we know of that are still in production there. So it's H&M, Mango, Zara, Primark are all currently manufacturing there. Um, and there are six, yeah, six hundred, 600,000, if I can get my numbers out, um, garment workers in Myanmar. So that's not exactly a small amount, that's a lot of people. Um, again, mostly women. Um, and this could have like a massive effect as well on the kind of the country's economy if brands actually take action. Because um, a third of Myanmar's exports are textiles and apparel, and that's been massively increasing in the past few years. So in 2012, that was the equivalent of $900 million, whereas in 2018, that was $4.5 billion. So that's a massive increase in just like six years. Um, I don't know what it is now exactly, but you can tell from that amount of time, it's gone up massively. Um, so yeah, it's, it's huge, has a potential for a huge effect on the kind of national economy and the government. Yeah, and I think this really kind of links back to what we were saying also about colonialism in fashion and the fact that we are still looking for these countries where we can produce goods cheaply and then ship goods halfway around the world um, without any real thought about the political situation in the country or about the climate impacts of that as well. Mm. Um, I'm sure I read some Oxfam report the other day that I'm going to definitely get this wrong, but um, <laughs> it was something like the average garment in the UK has the same like carbon footprint as a car driving around the world six times or something yeah. like that. I don't know if you've heard that, but I just, it's so... Yeah, not even the human cost, but just the environmental cost of yeah. us completely normalising this situation where it's completely normal for goods to be produced in countries, especially in Asia, because yeah. we can pay people a silly amount to make them. Mm. And like, to me, the kind of human cost and the environmental cost are bound together. You can't really have improve one without improving the other. Like, we'll probably talk about this later, but... Um, 
companies like H&M saying, oh, look at us with our organic cotton, um, but still producing billions of garments a year. Even if that's organic cotton, that won't make a difference if you're producing that amount. And that amount puts pressure on workers to work really quickly and has that massive spiral effect of reducing their wages and kind of added abuse because of added pressures on suppliers and all of these things that just create such a toxic environment for both people and planet it's just yeah you really can't separate them um yeah I know as I said I'm writing an essay at the minute on on the sustainable development goals but sustainable development goals 12 for anyone who doesn't know um is responsible consumption and production and yeah it just things like you say the H&M campaign baffle me so much but it kind of it almost is what the UN has promoted it's this idea that companies need to focus on more efficient and more organic production but there's no actual legislation or even encouragement in place to make consumers think about the quantity they're buying or um, people producing this to think about the quantity they're buying because I think you're right that's such a big part of the problem is it doesn't really matter how organic your cotton is yeah. if you're producing this enormous quantity that's just going to be thrown away and yes like forcing your workers to make it at like a ridiculous speed yeah. and that's in no way responsible no exactly um we'll probably talk more about um h&m in a bit because there's so much to say there um but i did also want to highlight specifically um another case um, that's elsewhere, um, the case of Jayasra Kathirvel, um, who was a 21 year old garment worker in India, um, who was murdered on the 1st of January this year by her supervisor at a garment factory supplying H&M, they're back again. Um, but that was after months of sexual harassment and also is, um, the fact that she was she was also raped by this uh, supervisor um so obviously it's, it's really horrific what happened to her she she went missing on the 1st of January and then was found her body was found on the 4th um there's been yeah a lot kind of, of pressure put on H&M in kind of these fashion advocacy spaces but I've not really seen this case covered anywhere else I think it's very easy if you're part of these spaces or follow a lot of these kind of organizations to maybe not see how these issues are covered elsewhere um so yeah in the, with the same factory so her Giasra worked at the Natchi apparel factory um and since her death 25 women from the same factory have come forward to the Tamil Nadu Textile and Common Labour Union with similar allegations of sexual harassment, sexual assault and verbal abuse um, against their supervisors and other staff and the same man, I think, as well, who was murdered, um, Jasra. Um, so there's clearly like a massive issue in that whole environment. Um, and yeah, there's been lots of pressure for H&M to change, to act, to create change in their supply chain because they're making the clothes that go, like that they are sold in their stores. And they're talking about being sustainability champions and having a conscious collection with massive air quotes around conscious. Um, but then these kind of things are happening. We know that are happening in their supply chain. Um, 
so on the 1st of April, actually, they did agree to pay um, Giaspora's family. I'm not sure how much exactly. I mean, how much can you value, like, give in return for, like, after a life has been lost? Um, but so far, there's no binding agreement has been made to stop for them to commit to stopping gender-based violence in their supply chain. Um, yeah, I think this case is something that I do try and bring up time and time again, that it's really important to discuss and make aware and Jasra has deserves to have her name be told and um, for something that what happened to her to not happen again. Um, and like, so unsurprisingly, her case isn't rare. It's not, we've had, there are so many um, cases of sexual violence in fashion supply chains. Um, there was an article, a long read in The Guardian by Annie Kelly about sexual violence in jeans factories that I think came out last year. I can't remember exactly when, but I remember reading it. And it's, when you hear about something that happened to Jasra, it's not, it doesn't become surprising when you've read things like that and heard of other things happening like it. And that's horrific that that's not surprising. Um, yeah, and I think it definitely reminds me of the whole, I don't know if H&M have ever made the whole feminist t-shirt thing, oh. but I imagine they probably have. And it does, it just makes me think of that. There's so many of these fast fashion companies, especially the brands like Boohoo and these online suppliers who are so willing to, as we said before, like tote out these political statements when it suits them, but to not actually do anything within, like internally to change their own systems. They just, they just want to make the money off the brand of feminism rather yeah. than actually looking after the woman within their own company. Exactly, and to say that they're like, I mean, I can't remember exactly, but I presume H&M put out a black square in the summer, like every other brand. Um, and, you know, to know that it is black and brown women who are suffering in their supply chains, the vast majority who are suffering in their supply chains, and they're not doing anything about it, is just, yeah, it's just ridiculous. Um, I think there's there are several days of action that have happened around kind of fighting for Jasra and justice. Um, so the first was on the first um, of April, which is when H&M agreed to pay their fam like her family. And there's another one happening. I think I think maybe on Wednesday. Uh, well, for people listening, the twenty first of April that may have passed by the time this goes out. Um, but I'm pursued, there will be more actions happening kind of collectively as well. But also you can just, you know, comment on one of H&M's comments, be like, justice for Jayasra. Um, just because there's not a kind of massive day of activism specifically that you're able to do, you can still do things individually that do make a difference. Um, and I think I also recommend looking at um, the website, or see if I can remember it, ukjusticeforjasra.org. There's loads of information on there, loads of articles you can look into as well as actions and all sorts of stuff. So I recommend having a look on there as well. You can see their demands. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think what you're saying about the activism side of it as well kind of brings me on to what would be my next question. I feel like I'm interviewing you. Um, no, it sounds like an interview yeah. at times like how how can consumers get involved and how can we raise actual awareness because I know we've talked about this before but I think especially we're both like privileged women at a university that has 
a feminist society and has a space where we can talk about these kind of things and we're in we're in these kind of conversations and these kind of circles where these conversations are happening um but I have a lot of friends who aren't um especially my male friends like I know I think over the past year a lot of women I know have become more aware of what's going on um mainly through Instagram and sort of posts on Instagram and pay up campaign and things like that but a lot of other people I'm friends with like yeah when they've like seen me post something on Twitter or Instagram and I wouldn't say I'm the most vocal about it they've genuinely been like like you were at the age of 17 like oh what's our fashion like what's this and like how yeah how can we get I don't want to say ordinary people because that sounds incredibly <laughs> classist but at the end of the day like we like I say we're so privileged to be at university yeah. how do we get people who aren't in those spaces to get involved in these kind of conversations and to be aware of their actions yeah. it's really difficult because like as I mentioned before like, I had the time last year to do more research like I'd already knew like a fair bit about the topic but because of the pandemic and being on furlough and just being stuck at home all summer and kind of being too anxious to leave the house for a long time as well like that's the only thing I I was able to look into it time is such a massive thing um so yeah it's really complicated and I mean I always with everything I do I'm like trying to make sure that I remember how much privilege I have as like white thin cis woman in like the UK at a university like there's so much like levels of access to things that I have that others don't or um yeah it's, it's kind of hard it's and I think people on things like Twitter and stuff can easily forget that and it's like you see some things it's like no um kind of people also like judging people going to Primark like really recently and I'm like I genuinely like you probably like many people in those queues probably need new clothes um and there's so many there's also barriers to like online shopping if you don't have reliable like internet access and all sorts of stuff um but yeah you see a lot of people judging those queues I'm just like that's not the way to go about it obviously it depends on who's in those queues if those queues are people who are just buying loads of stuff for the sake of it um and actually have a lot of disposable income like you know that's when it's the issue um yeah, yeah. so many times it's, it's to do with disposable people with massive disposable incomes who aren't who are just buying loads of stuff for the sake of it yeah and I think the thing is to me and I know again we've talked about this before but to me it's so much about the quantity you're buying because I don't yes it's probably technically better if you buy a t-shirt from Lucy and Yak than from Primark however if you actually don't need that t-shirt like yeah. that is the inherent problem with this and this is something I have found quite hard when I've talked about money and this before is I've had friends university students who would claim to be working class but they're still at university and they're still very privileged who'll be like oh well I can't afford to shop ethically and I'm I totally understand that argument like you say if you need new clothes and you're going to Primark to buy them that's completely fine however if you're using that argument to justify doing a sheen, I don't know how to say it, sheen haul or boozy haul. I don't know whether that's right. I'm not sure how to yeah, I don't know. But I anyway, it's the problem is to me when you're then saying I'm too poor to afford to shop ethically, but then you're still buying like five new outfits a week. Yeah. And 
I understand that there is a expectation and a pressure to look nice again especially on maybe more female identifying people especially if you have a job interview or something like that I understand sometimes you genuinely might need that confidence and to look nice for a certain social situation however for every night out you're going to go on you don't need to buy a new top and then say I have to do this because yeah I couldn't afford to buy it ethically I don't know it just it's I mean, something that really bugs me but then again I appreciate that I'm a very wealthy person and I can't yeah necessarily comment on that I mean like with all my night I've every outfit I've worn on, on, on a night out I've worn multiple times and like I love those outfits I will wear them repeatedly um not most of them well I don't think any of them were actually kind of created ethically some of them are secondhand some of them I've had for ages um it just somewhere I was given as gifts that I know were like weren't created ethically but you know I've still got to wear them because I freaking love that outfit and I look great in it and it makes me feel great so like you know you don't have to wear things all like new all the time yeah it's when people have like oh I'm gonna I've bought a hundred quids worth of like fast fashion new outfits and I'm gonna do the same in two weeks like and then those same people saying oh I can't afford that it's like you don't need that many new clothes all the time um I think that's the, the attitude you need to have no matter where you're buying whether it's secondhand ethically or like fast fashion is do I need this that constant like question of do I actually need this or is it just me kind of wanting an impulse buy on something new um I think is the major question because you know it's, it's the same with charity shops we've seen it with the massive I don't think we have time to go into it in depth but the massive gentrification of charity shops and of platforms like Depop and where people um they get in those situations because people are treating them like fast fashion shops and having those that same mentality of being like oh it's fine because it's secondhand when it's, it's not it's still that level of consumption like that level of consumption is still damaging um but in terms of activism like coming back to your original question um I think you know like you can really do things in simple ways it doesn't have to you don't have to um buy things to as well as Aisha Baron Black who's the founder of Remake she has like this one saying that I realized that you can't buy your way into sustainable fashion that's not how it works um so you know it's, it's more about collective change than individual action I think so you know simple things like signing the, the pay up petition um tagging brands and things online which actually is shown to have a massive effect you know like the pay up campaign is based on internet activism and has had massive kind of um wins um yeah tagging them even wearing clothes for an extra day just wearing them for longer and not buying clothes for however long um just re-wearing things is an act of resistance um and yeah it doesn't have to be anything ridiculous if you have some money to donate donate it to the garment worker relief fund which is run by remake and i can provide links <laughs> um somewhere i'm not quite sure where whether we have a like description box on spotify um but yeah, the Garment Worker Relief Fund, the Myanmar Strike Fund, um, if you have the funds and are able to, that's great. Obviously, there's no pressure to if you don't and or can't. Um, just, yeah, simple things like literally tagging them, commenting on their posts, being like, who made this? How much were the workers paid for this? Um, yeah, and just trying to learn a bit if you can. Like, 
honestly by following organizations on remake and like like remake fashion revolution labor behind the label you learn so much just by following them on social media like I've learned so much that way um yeah there's so many things you can do literally signing petitions takes 30 seconds if that and ones like the pay up petition will send um it, it sends an email to over 200 brand executives so you know that has impact um when it's many many people over and over again you don't have to buy new things to be making a change I think it's just the key message that um I think I want to say on that um yeah yeah definitely and I know I mean this is just me complaining about people but I know we've both seen those <laughs> conversations on Twitter that are like uh, oh well nothing's ethical under capitalism or like oh yeah you're using an iPhone to type this and I, yeah. I just find that quite frustrating because you are right, nothing's ethical under capitalism. My iPhone is not ethical. However, <laughs> I, again, I don't think that's an excuse to buy quantity. Like I say, I don't I don't actually particularly care where you buy from. It's the quantity that's the problem for me. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, like we're recording this on a MacBook. Um, I have had this for many years. I can't remember exactly how many now, but like it's, yeah it's the kind of consumption we know this is not ethical <laughs> like so many things aren't ethical we try our best and like I think as, I think as long as we're trying to make some change somewhere that's more important because yeah no one can do anything perfect um like yeah I talk a lot about these issues online but I still wear all the fast fashion clothes that I've had for years I still buy sometimes because I need pants like every probably human in the world does I buy like I you know we've talked about this before we're being frustrated by trying to find ethical underwear like well I need to get new pants soon I'm just I'm gonna buy a pack from M&S because that's where I feel comfortable to I don't particularly want to buy pants secondhand and they're ridiculously expensive not ridiculously because it makes sense why they're expensive but they're too expensive for me to afford to get a massive a pack of pants from an ethical shop because I just that's just not within my range at the moment um so it's about doing what you can and like knowing that no one's perfect everyone makes mistakes and yeah it's you, you literally cannot be perfect but you can still try it's uh, yeah and I think I think that is the reason because I think just because you're not going to like create a utopia next week <laughs> doesn't, it's not a reason to just give up um yeah I think that's totally right but just going on to I know something we want to talk about um how can you know what actually is ethical if you are trying to be shop a bit more consciously because you do need something new um but with this sort of trend of places like H&M especially and Primark and this greenwashing trend how can you actually understand where is good or better to shop if you do need to buy something I mean it's really difficult it's tough like I've probably like you know I've probably tripped up on things before. Everyone's tripped up on things. It's really difficult. Um, again, I'm going to plug my like my blog. There's I've got a blog post on like how to check if a fa like like if a fashion brand is like ethical and stuff. So I would recommend having a look on that for kind of more detail on things. But basically, like I don't know with things like H and M, if they're massive stores, presume they're not. Is <laughs> the general gist kind of presume the worst until they can prove to you and by prove having a literally an outline of their supply chain telling you the names of factories 
how much their workers are being paid in those factories, like giving you proper details on like certifications, all sorts of stuff. If they can't tell you that, then, you know, maybe don't trust them. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean don't buy from them. You know, it's everyone has different levels of access and all sorts. Um, but just presume the worst until they can like prove otherwise. Um, but, you know, with greenwashing, it's like, they normally have massive colours and it's the colours a lot in greenwashing like they will have or like buzzwords like conscious, sustainable, um, eco, like green, all of these things which you know is mostly, can we swear on this podcast? Um, bullshit, I can't remember whether we were supposed to share on this, uh, swear on this podcast um, but it is bullshit if, if they're just saying those buzzwords. Um, and yeah it, they will often have like nature imagery green imagery but not necessarily be able to back that up with the actual goods um and there's no legal requirements around who can use the words sustainable ethical um and how there's literally no legal requirements so you have to do the digging yourself otherwise they can say they're ethical but they might not be um so i I would recommend looking at Remake's uh, brand directory. It has like all the information, it kind of ranks them, gives them points on all of these various different factors, which I would recommend looking at. Um, but basically look on their website, see what information they have on their website. They often have like a kind of, well, they'll have a modern slavery section, um, but there's not been, <laughs> I did some research for this on a, um, for an essay a while ago basically no claims have been put under the modern slavery act nothing's been actually done with it it's just there so look at that see what they say in that section of the website look at their maybe sustainability section a lot of them have that but a lot of the time it's just kind of words if you can have a look and see what their gender pay gaps are that will just be their like hq office so not their garment workers but sometimes those are massively huge gender pay gaps like misguided has oh it has it's like 40 percent. i can't remember it's massive i can't remember off the top of my head but it's huge and they're a brand that markets themselves on feminism um so yeah literally just, and also just email them if you're not sure and you want to know send them an email or a dm or just something and if they reply great but just keep on asking um even if you know you're still going to be able to buy you still have to buy from them ask and keep asking use your status as a customer of theirs as well because they don't want to lose you even if you know that you still have to buy from them you could threaten to withdraw your custom if they don't like if you don't know these things um yeah it's really difficult and i just say kind of look at places like remakes brand directory and things like that as well um if you can or just google the brand and ethical scandal or like workers rights scandal and google that and things will come up um, i think that's a good trick yeah i think that's good but kind of going back to what we were saying about how for someone who's not necessarily that knowledgeable on this topic i think things like the whole Maisie williams brand ambassador to h&m to say how good it is I think that can be really confusing for someone who hasn't looked into this that deeply because there's someone like Maisie, I don't know that much about Maisie Williams, but yeah. I'm I'm about to say she's pretty cool. I don't know anything about her. This is a purely Game of Thrones-based statement. But, you know, someone like that who people maybe admire a little bit and 
they're saying this is an ethical thing how yeah it's quite confusing if you haven't been aware of this before yeah they make it so convincing it's so difficult to like see past that if you don't have the background knowledge like, I think for people like me who are aware of it and who are quite involved in these kind of activist spaces around them it's very easy to just go oh not again all of these like things and I mean when I saw that video that Rosie Williams put up about her being the new global um, global sustainability ambassador for H&M I was like my eyes rolled right to the back of my head um but yeah and also with Laura Whitmore as well recently becoming Primark's like care ambassador which is oh yeah um but it's really difficult I think looking at a looking at the comments of these type of posts by celebrities as well is really useful because that will often be where kind of activists will comment as well being like oh what about this and that kind of stuff um like it's yeah it's really difficult I think just remaining skeptical is the key part of it um yeah I it's difficult and there's not a one-time solution to be like that's how you do it um but I think I think you're just following some people like Ajababa, Venetia Lamana, um Remake, Fashion Revolution are really useful because when brands do something like this they will be posting about it and talking about it so that helps be less confusing as well um so I would recommend as much as social media is complicated and that's a conversation for another day and like social media activism shouldn't be the be all and end all it's a really easy and accessible point to learn about things just like and to remind you especially just following people like Ajababa like genuinely uh, I've learned so much from her I know so many other people have as well um like calling out brands that you may not know are doing things wrong um yeah I had no idea whether that made sense <laughs> no it definitely did I think going back again to what we've already said is like if you don't need to buy something from that brand just don't buy it that's the easiest way to like, make sure you're being safe like if you don't need it or like if yeah if you don't need it if you do need something maybe have a look on chat like if you can try and find it secondhand obviously secondhand again has access accessibility issues and we shouldn't be treating it like fast fashion with the consumption wise but um you know if you can if you still have to buy from a place like H&M uh, but are able to buy from the conscious collection instead as much as the conscious collection is a bit ridiculous and they should make all of their um products the conscious collection I still probably prefer someone bought from the conscious collection than their just main stock if that's what their options were um but obviously again that's like it's more of how you treat the garment in my opinion and how much you love the garment rather than like how much yeah because otherwise it gets into shaming and we don't want to do that because that's not that's not how the system changes um yeah although I will shame the like people from Made in Chelsea who do Shane Halls and like are sponsored by Pretty Little Thing I will shame them I won't shame anyone else <laughs> yeah okay just to wrap up that section is there yeah. anything else you want to touch on oh god there's so much we could talk about but I don't think we have time to go over everything <laughs> but yeah is there anything else you wanted to talk about no, I don't think so. I think 
I also would recommend following you. I feel like I've learned a lot from you. Um, Thank you. And I do think as we've kind of covered, I think social media kind of is the easiest way of spreading messages about this because yeah. a lot of people are on social media and messages are usually quite simple. And yeah, if it's something as simple as this brand isn't great or buy a bit less, I think that is really the easiest way of getting this message across. And then if anyone is interested, they can kind of look into it in more depth. Definitely. And you also underestimate your own power. Like, yeah, you may not have your account dedicated to slow fashion, but like, you know, as many other accounts do, uh, and I talk a lot about it on mine, but, you know, individual, the people who follow your personal account will probably care more about what you have to say than what I have to say as a stranger on the internet. Like, people will care about who are friends with you and care about you will listen to your opinion more than like some random people they may see as preachy um so I think you know people underestimate their own power in terms of when they share things because they people will listen to you if they care about you um like even if you have 50 followers those 50 followers will probably listen to you um, yeah and just last point as well I think something I really like that you do is you actively wear the same clothes on your Instagram and post about yeah. it and yeah. I genuinely think that makes such a difference because I think such a big part of this problem has come from the fact that people see each other on social media on a new outfit every week yeah. I think this was probably a lot better before we had social media letting us act like minor celebrities yeah. um so yeah I even think that you just wear the same outfit in your post and people will yeah. be like oh it's not the end of the world like it's fine to wear the same clothes twice I look I'm just like for me when I, I love so many of my clothes so much and I've had them for so long and I'm like I genuinely treasure them I want to be like oh I love this top on social media like it's it's quite sad um but yeah I think we've probably talked for a while about that one so um yeah let's go on to the next section Cool. So this um, section is a game called Did a Feminist Say This? Uh, which was created by our president, Harriet. Um, so Rosie, you have to guess whether a feminist said this quote or not. Um, these quotes are fashion related. They're on theme. Um, so the first one is a girl should be two things, classy and fabulous. I want to say not a feminist. You're right, that one. You're right. So <laughs> that was said by Coco Chanel, who people argue was a feminist. A lot of her quotes are sometimes included in like feminist roundups, but I'm pretty sure she was a, a Nazi. So no. Um. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people also, yeah. I When I last did this game, we had a Thatcher quote. And again, people like to make out that Thatcher's a feminist. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, Prince Philip's apparently feminist, but you know. Uh, yeah, true, exactly. Um, so the next one is, I like clothes and I like shoes. One of the challenges for women in the workplace is to be ourselves. And I say you can be clever and like clothes. You can have a career and like clothes. I'm going to say a feminist. It's not. Oh, no. <laughs> although she, it's not a feminist, although she would say she's a feminist. Um, so you may remember a picture of this person wearing a t-shirt that says, this is what a feminist looks like. Again, a whole other topic within talking about fashion is the feminist t-shirts uh so this was said by Theresa may oh yeah wow she, she would call herself a feminist as we know however she's not interesting yeah 
I mean, she's famous for her kitten heel. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was going to say, I actually don't know enough about Theresa May's fashion sense for that, but... I, I just yeah. remember seeing loads of people talking about her, like, high heels all the time when she was Prime Minister, but, yeah. Interesting one. Cool. <laughs> so, is there anything you would like to plug right now as we finish the podcast? Um, I'm actually going to say no, because... <laughs> I don't do anything that exciting. I will plug to minus things, so off you go, to my Okay, thank you. Um, so yeah, I've got a few things just to mention. So if you do want to learn more about this stuff, I am constantly talking about the fashion industry on my Instagram, which is at another ranting reader, and my blog, which is anotherrantingreader.co.uk. Um, and also on my Twitter, although I've been on that less recently, I've had a bit of a Twitter break. Um, so if you fancy it, you can look at me on there, which is at a ranting reader um but we also have the pay up petition which i would love to plug please go sign it it's on the um payupfashion.com um it has loads of information on the website about the petition what why it exists what is it's achieved um and the demands as well which were created in collaboration um with remake and garment workers unions um it's a very grassroots created petition so please have a look at that and please sign it. It makes a world of difference. Um, and yeah, just have a look at Remake and Fashion Revolution and see what else is happening in Fashion Revolution Week. Um, that would be great. That's my little homework for everyone listening um, is to sign the pay up petition. Um, and always, we also have other things happening in FemSoc coming up as well. Um, so yeah, we've got some more events coming up for our last term um, of the year. Um, so we have, the book clubs we have our last book club event for sister outsider which i'm very excited about um which will be happening on the 28th of april and then we have law and feminism uh, all about gender-based violence and the law um kind of talking a lot about recent events as well um we've got various other events happening too so i think we've got our self-care weekend event um with gardening happening on the 25th which is very exciting um and yeah, we all have our, as always, we have our merch available on the new Sue website. Um, so at this month, FemSoc are footing the bill for the merch so that 100% of the money goes to charity. And our charity of the month in April is Rape Crisis, Tyneside and Northumberland. Um, yeah, I think that's everything that we need to mention. Um, yeah, um, just the FemSoc Instagram as well is new to yeah. FemSoc if anyone does want to give that a follow. Um, but yeah, I think that's it for today. I had fun. I could talk about this all day. Yeah, I mean, me too. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah, it was really nice to have a chat about these things and bring up these issues as well. Um, yeah, we hope everyone enjoyed listening. We do. Uh, so yeah, we'll see you soon. Okay. Bye. <laughs>